Okay, well, I want to invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 this morning. And um, we are uh, continuing this series that uh, we had sketched out several months ago, looking at the last words of Jesus uh, from the cross. Jesus utters seven uh, statements from the cross as he approaches his, his death. And so we've been looking at these week by week as we approach Easter, and they really could not be more relevant and appropriate for the time that we find ourselves in. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to read Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. It says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Let me invite you to be seated as we give our attention to God's Word this morning. I want nothing but death. I want nothing but death. These are the final words of Jane Austen. Jane Austen, of course, was a famous author, she died of an unidentified and yet very painful disease in 1817. At the age of 14, Jane Austen had made the decision to become a professional writer, and so from that age, she made it her life's purpose to write, but for most of that time, uh, she was not terribly successful. Both personally and professionally, her life was met with frustration, with Really, two failed engagements with uh, obscurity. She, uh, she experienced grief and loss for much of her life until finally, at the age of 37, she finally met resounding success when she wrote Pride and Prejudice. And yet, sadly, shortly thereafter, uh, she got sick. And uh, she went through a painful uh, period of illness, her deteriorating health and the pain that it caused left her longing for death, which she thought of as the only escape to her suffering. I want nothing but death, were her final words. Well, by comparison, this passage in Mark 15 uh, shows us the final words of Jesus. And in the final hours before his death, though he suffers greatly in these final words, Jesus uh, cries out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see in Jesus' final words here that in his final moments, Jesus is not looking to escape his own suffering, but rather, what we see here is that Jesus, by his suffering, fighting, uh, he is fighting to redeem us. He hangs on the cross so that by his suffering, we might be made whole. He cries out in abandonment so that we might be saved from loneliness and from isolation. For Jesus, death is not an escape 
from suffering. Rather, on the cross, Jesus suffers so that we might ultimately be set free from suffering. So, two things I want you to see in this passage. Uh, where darkness comes from and what darkness accomplishes. So firstly, where does darkness come from? As uh, all four gospel writers tell us, the crucifixion of Jesus took place in the dark. Uh, we are told that Jesus was abandoned by his friends when it was dark. He was betrayed by his friends when it was dark. He was arrested in the dark. Uh, he was tried at an illegal overnight trial in the dark. And here, in his final hours, he is crucified in the dark. Mark specifically tells us here that it was dark from the 6th to the ninth hour, that is about from, from noon to 3 p.m. And what we're seeing is a supernatural darkness that hovers over the crucifixion of Jesus. Lots of people have read this and have tried to offer some sort of natural explanation for this darkness that comes over, Jesus, over the crucifixion of Jesus. Some people have said, well, this was an eclipse, but uh, a true eclipse, a, a solar eclipse, only lasts for a couple of moments. You know, it takes longer than that, but the, the time of darkness only lasts for, you know, seconds or minutes at the most. Uh, but even beyond that, we know that Jesus was crucified at the Passover, and the Passover is based on the lunar calendar, happens during the full moon, and a solar eclipse cannot happen during a full moon. Uh, other people have said that what's happening here is there's uh, these uh, Middle Eastern windstorms or sandstorms that kicks up so much debris and sand in the air that, that it darkens the sky. And uh, it's true that that phenomenon happens from time to time, but the Passover takes place during the wet season. And so there's no uh, real physical, natural explanation uh, for this darkness. What we see here, what we're seeing here is a supernatural darkness. It's a spiritual darkness that hovers over the crucifixion of Jesus. Yes, of course it was a physical darkness. It really happened but it means something. When the Bible talks about darkness, uh, what it's talking about is it's talking about us, human beings, turning away from God, uh, facing ourselves away from God, facing something other than God as the center of our life or the source of our life. There's a place later in the, in the New Testament in, in uh, 1 Timothy 6 where the Apostle Paul describes God like this. It says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or in fact can see. The Bible is always talking about God in terms of light. And what Paul's saying in other places that the Bible's saying when it describes God uh, by comparing him to the sun or light or light unapproachable is the Bible is, is consistently saying that God is like the sun or God, uh, God is like the sun in the sense that uh, the sun gives life the sun, um, uh, you know, if you take a plant away and hide it away in the dark, it shrivels and dies. Uh, the sun shines the light on truth by allowing us to see. And in the same way, God is like the source of light that gives life and light to all people and to all things. So we see God as the source of life and truth, not just because we see him, but because by him we see everything. And so what this is telling us then is that if you make anything other than God the center of your life, a relationship, success, comfort, um, if you make anything other than God 
the source of your life, the result is inevitably darkness, spiritual darkness. You know, in our time, we rarely experience physical darkness. I mean, we know that it gets dark at night, but there's electricity. There, uh, we have camera, like, flashlights on our phones. Um, we very rarely experience true, absolute dark, the sort of darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. I remember as a kid um, having these, I guess, dreams, uh, whatever it is that's sort of like at the intersection of a dream and being awake. And I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and being utterly terrified. And having these dreams that kind of stayed with me even, even, uh, even when I woke up, uh, where I was so afraid, afraid and, and I remember just feeling like really two things. Um, one, it felt like my house was so enormous. It was so huge. And it was so dark. And I remember thinking that if I could just get to my parents' room, everything would be okay, but I felt so small. And I didn't know where I was because it was so dark and so disorienting. I think that happened actually, I had one of those dreams uh, since, since I, I've been married to Ashley, uh, early in our marriage, and I remember waking her up and saying, please just talk to me because I needed this point of reference, this point of reference that would orient me. Actual darkness is disorienting. You know, when you can't see even your hand in front of your own face, um, it's incredibly confusing. It feels like you don't know where you are. And that disorientation, that sense of not knowing where you are, begins to lead to, uh, lead to a sense of disintegration. It feels like you're falling apart, and you can't see what's around you, and you can't tell where danger might come from. That's the way physical darkness feels to us, but the Bible is showing us that physical darkness and spiritual darkness are similar. And what the Bible tells us is that if you center your life around anything other than God, you may be a Christian, you may believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again for you. You may believe that God created the world, that the, that the Bible is true, and yet you are living uh, for something else. There's something else that you need to make your life worth living. You need the approval of someone. You need the comfort of certain things. You need a relationship. You need success at work. The Bible's telling us that physical darkness our spiritual darkness, rather, is the inevitable result of building our lives around something other than God. What you lose when you enter into spiritual darkness is very similar to what you lose when you enter into um, even just physical darkness. Spiritual darkness feels like this. It feels like purposelessness. Um, you don't know where you're going in the dark when you're in spiritual darkness. You lose purpose because you don't know uh, what brings your life meaning. You lose identity, um, or your identity becomes very fragile because it is based on this thing that you've built your life around. It's based on the approval of others. It's based on your success. We were watching a, uh, a, a show, a reality show as a family last night, and one of the contestants got to the end and said, this just proves that if you never, ever, ever, ever give up, you can win too. And I thought, that is such terrible news. Because many of us get to the point where we just cannot go any further. And then who am I? Our identity becomes very fragile when it's based on our performance. 
the approval of others, and so we struggle to know who we really are. Um, spiritual darkness is lonely. It isolates us from other people. Spiritual darkness, building our lives around anything other than God, it leads to disorientation, to disintegration, and to isolation. So that's what spiritual darkness is. So here's the question that this passage raises then. Why is Jesus in spiritual darkness? Because surely if there was one person who, who built his life entirely around God, it was Jesus. Why is Jesus in darkness? The spiritual darkness is what happens when you build your life around around something other than God, why is this overcoming Jesus? Why is he suffering loneliness and isolation and abandonment and disintegration? So the second thing I want you to see in this passage is what darkness accomplishes. What darkness accomplishes. If you notice in verse 34, as Jesus suffers on the cross, and we know this, that many people over the years have detailed in, in excruciating detail, just the horror of crucifixion. Uh, the Romans had designed execution by crucifixion to be a horrifically painful way to die. What crucifixion really did was it kept the person being executed just on the verge of death for as long as possible. Sometimes it would take days for those who were being crucified to actually succumb to death. It was incredibly painful, inducing agonizing suffering. And so it's incredible that what we see Jesus say here in verse 34 as he cries out, he doesn't cry out, oh my head, my head, or oh my lungs, my lungs, I, 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 can't, I can't breathe. But what he cries out is, Oh my God, my God. Oh my God, my God. And what that means is that as he hangs on the cross, Jesus isn't just getting uh, the worst thing that the world can throw on him physically, although that clearly is happening. That's not just what's happening. This is not just physical, though it is that. This is more than just the physical. This is spiritual darkness. Jesus is enduring spiritual suffering. What's coming down on Jesus in this darkness on the cross is the judgment of God. It is the displeasure, it is the anger of God at the sin of the human race. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that the entire world was created through Jesus. John 1 says that all things, not just the world, but all things were made through him. Colossians 1 says that all things in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, were created through him. And in him all things hold together. And yet here we see on the cross that the one in whom all things hold together is himself being torn apart. Why? Why is Jesus, of all people, experiencing this, the physical, spiritual darkness, the wrath of God. Why is Jesus suffering like this? What this is showing us is this, the maker of the world is himself being unmade. The maker of the world has come back to the world that he created, not to uh, revisit upon us the horror of spiritual darkness, but rather to bear it himself. I mean, think about all that Jesus has gone through. He has been 
betrayed by his friends. He has been stripped naked. His hands and his feet have been nailed, you know, driven through with a nail to nail him to the cross. A thorn of crowns has been placed upon his head. His side has been speared, uh, pierced with a spear. And yet, incredibly, he doesn't mention anything about any of those physical uh, torments. Because in light of all that's going on uh, spiritually to Jesus, they're like a gnat landing and biting, you know, a horse. Nothing physical can compare with what he's experiencing spiritually. He is being completely torn apart. Uh, what did we say? That, that, that darkness brings disorientation, right? Jesus is being disoriented here. God, where are you? Uh, he's being torn apart. He is losing his sense of, of, of identity and self. You know, this is the only place I can find in the New Testament where Jesus refers to God in the generic God instead of Father. Who is he if not the Son? And yet here he's not referring to my Father but my God. And he is, of course, experiencing isolation. Father, God, 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 why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you turning your back on me in this my time of need? Why is this happening to Jesus? It's happening to Jesus because he's suffering in our place. 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul explains what's happening on the cross when he says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross is swapping places with us. He gets what we deserve so that we get what he deserves. And so for Jesus, unlike Jane Austen, death is not an escape from suffering. Rather, it's through suffering and death that Jesus pays the penalty for our sin in order to give us purpose and wholeness and to reconcile us to God. Friends, that's good news. And we see that because look at what the immediate result is. Jesus here breathes his last. And in verse 38, it tells us that when Jesus breathed his last, the temple, uh, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. What, what, what that's describing is in the temple in Jerusalem, the holiest uh, place on earth, in the holiest building on earth, in the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies were separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain that the Old Testament says is, is as thick as, as the breadth of your hand. It's not a flimsy paper curtain that's torn in two. Uh, it is a thick, almost like a wall. And into this holy of holies, the holiest man, the high priest, went. And only on the holiest man went there, and only on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, could he go into that room. And when he went there into the presence of God, uh, once a year, on the, ho the holiest man on the holiest day, uh, the people held their breath. And they, in fact, they tied a rope around his ankle because if he's in the presence of God, if he's in the presence of God that is, that is made manifest there on earth in the Holy of Holies and he sins, he will drop dead and they'll use the rope to pull his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. So it's only this one man who is perfect, uh, who, who's, who's embodying perfection, who goes into this room once a year 
to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. The holiest man in the holiest place with a perfect sacrifice, but the very minute that Jesus dies, it says the curtain, this curtain that is veiling the glory of God from the world is torn in two from top to bottom just to make it clear who did it. This is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. This is the darkness that brings us into the light. This is the abandonment that restores all of our relationships because it restores our most important relationship to our God and to our Savior, to the one who gives us life. Because Jesus suffered in our place and he paid for our sin, God welcomes us home and calls us his children. Everything is made new because of the suffering of Jesus. So that's what this passage is telling us. Now, very quickly, let, let me just uh, ask this question. Um, can, we, can we see how important this is, but how incredibly relevant uh, it is for our time? Because what we're seeing in this passage is that Jesus was abandoned so that you will never ultimately be abandoned by God. And yet, as I say that, we are all living, at least uh, to, to a great degree, in isolation. Jesus was abandoned so that we will never be isolated, and yet here we are uh, living in isolation, and yet, and yet, what this passage is telling us is that we will never ultimately be isolated or abandoned by God. We are now living in this strange time where we are exiles in our own homes. Uh, it's very strange, and it brings out all sorts of things for us. For some of us, it brings out just this sense of exhaustion of every day I get to five o'clock and it's tiring because I've, tried, I've had to make up a script for the whole day. There is no plan for how to be a pastor when I can't be physically with people. And so I'm tired at the end of every day. For some of us, it brings anxiety. We don't know what the future is gonna hold. For some of us, it brings fear. Uh, for, for, for some of us, it brings uh, parenting struggles or, or marriage uh, struggles because we're not used to being in the same house with these people all the time, 24 hours a day. For some of us, it brings frustration as we look at um, our livelihoods being affected or our lives being affected by the decisions of others. And all I want to ask you is this, that is it possible that in the midst of this time of isolation, that there's actually an invitation that's being offered to us. That we are not simply the victims of circumstances, but there is an opportunity being extended to us. Because here's the reality, friends. We live in a time that says suffering is meaningless, and the only thing we can truly call evil in our culture is suffering. And so suffering, we think, ought to be avoided at all cost, and we are ill-equipped to deal with it when it comes. And yet here we see in Mark 15 that the most evil, heinous events in the history of the world, the crucifixion of God, is the very thing that God uses to do the most good in the world, to make all things new and to restore sinners like us to himself. And so if God can use the most evil event in history for good as Jesus suffers on the cross, is it possible that he can even use this crisis that we are all living through and grieving and suffering in many different ways for our good and his glory as well. Now, how might he do that? Well, first, let me just ask you 
this, is it possible that God might be extending to you the invitation of his grace? You know, maybe you're the sort of person who would say, I would never darken the door of a church, or I haven't for many years, and yet here you are. You still haven't darkened the door of the church, but you're 23 minutes into this message this morning. Maybe you're the sort of person who finds themselves saying, you know, I don't believe in God, and yet who knows? I got a uh, message from somebody this week who said essentially that, I don't believe that prayer works, but if you're offering to pray, would you please pray for me? Maybe this is an invitation to consider the story of Jesus for the first time, to see how his darkness might actually bring life into your life, light into your life. But secondly, maybe you're a Christian, and um, you know, like me, many days this week, I wake up with this knot in my stomach, this feeling of anxiousness, of not knowing what the future holds, of what this crisis will do for my financial future, that of my family. Maybe you're frustrated or angry, or however this is playing out for you, what it's revealing in your life is that you say, that you say, I'm a Christian and I believe Jesus lived and died and rose again for me. This crisis is revealing that there's actually something else that you have built your life around. You're frustrated or you're angry or you're anxious and this is an invitation to reorient your life around God. The truth is that our lives are never within our own control. And yet when times are good and things are going well, we often live like God is blessing us and things are great. And when we get to a place where our lives, um, things are beyond our control, we have to reconcile, we have to reckon with the fact that uh, we haven't built our lives around God. And we feel that more than ever now. And so the good news, friends, is that God is on the throne and this didn't catch him by surprise. And as, of course, we pray for him to bring a swift end to the spread of this virus, we also have to acknowledge that he knows what he's doing and that he may be using it to reshape our lives in good and beautiful ways. This week, I don't know if you saw this, I heard the incredible story about a 72-year-old Italian priest. His name is uh, Giuseppe Berardelli. And uh, this man, this Italian priest, had, uh, it was reported in the news, he had given up, he had contracted COVID-19, and he had given up his uh, respirator for a, a, younger, uh, a younger patient, and then this man had subsequently died. And it was this picture of, of the beauty of self-sacrifice. And uh, it, it was funny because, I, I mean, it's not funny, but I, I heard the story and a bunch of my pastor friends where everybody's planning to use this story in their sermon and then, and then uh, Friday it came out that it, it wasn't actually a true story. And that the, uh, what, however this had been originally um, reported, it was a mistake and it didn't, it didn't happen that way. And it was fascinating to see the response of so many people uh, saying, we wanted this story to be true. We wanted this story to be true. And I'm, I begin to wonder, why do we want so bad to believe that in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of this time when people are suffering, we want to believe this true story that there was a man who was compelled by grace to sacrifice himself for others. We want to believe during this time 
that selflessness is real, that it is not just an empty platitude. We want to believe that there is good that can come even through suffering. And so, friends, I think what we're experiencing when we think about that story and long for it to be true, even though it's not, is what C.S. Lewis said many, many years ago. That for every natural desire in us, there is some real object in this life that corresponds to it. If I'm hungry, it's because there's such a thing as food. It's, if we experience sexual attraction, it's because there's such a thing as sexual intimacy. We experience a desire for belonging because there's community and friendship and relationship. Why do we long for the story of this priest who sacrificed himself for the good of others to be true? We long for it to be true because we long to believe that God can use something, can bring some good out of what we are currently experiencing. Friends, that story is not true, but the story of the gospel is. We have a Savior who has stepped into our darkness, who has stepped into our disorientation in order to bring us home, who has himself been rejected and abandoned so that we will never be isolated from God. And so this is an invitation. Won't you come home your trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Jesus, we thank you that you went to incredible lengths to show us your goodness. You were torn apart that we might be put back together. You were rejected that we might be brought in. Oh God, would you transform us as we remember the beauty of the gospel this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.